Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I am your host this week, Father David Mowry, chaplain of the Movies by Minutes community. And I'm honored to be joined as my guest today, the Professor of Moral Theology at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Mundelein Seminary, Dr. Melanie Barrett. Dr. Barrett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's an honor to uh, have someone with uh, some professorial standing to to weigh in with some academic insight into this movie. So I appreciate you being with us today. Now, I... uh, I want to know, first, uh, before we get into this minute, uh, your reactions to the best years of our lives, and maybe just first your history with the film. Was this a movie you were familiar with, or was this a new one to you? This was a new one to me. Um, I asked one of my friends, who's a real movie buff, if he had ever seen it before, if it sounded familiar, and he responded, oh, I've seen it five times. And he said, it's a great movie about men returning from the war and adjusting to civilian life. Mm -hmm. And also, he found interesting the modern themes and contrasts to the pre-World War II period. Um, and then I asked my mother about it and, oh, that's a great movie. Didn't that get an Academy Award? So it seems everybody had seen the movie except for me. So I was glad I had the opportunity to finally watch it since apparently I was missing out on something. And when you finally got a chance to see it, what did you think of it? Oh, I thought it was utterly charming. And I thought mm. there were some important themes that um, even though they were Uh, part and parcel to what was going on in the country in 1946, that they're still very contemporary um, for us today, even though it's been 80 years since. Well, it's because there's, it's still a story about human beings and there remains a, a common thread of humanity's response to things such as war that remain true up until the present day. But what were, I'm, I'm curious to know, what were some of those themes that, that, you, that you picked out from the film? Well, for example, um, just the practicalities of people's character. Um, mm. Sometimes people can seem good or bad, and you don't really know until they're in a very stressful, tense situation. That's when sometimes their real selves shine forth. Um, and so that's something that's always interesting. So for example, um, uh, one of the characters, um, who gets married to a woman within, what does he know her for 20 days before he goes, he ships out to war? Right. So that, that's our Air Force Captain Fred and his wife, Marie, they have a whirlwind romance and, uh, we've heard Fred uh, previous to our minute today talk about wanting to actually start his relationship with Marie since they barely know each other. So so he comes back and you can see she's blonde, she's beautiful, she's tall, she's fun. You can see immediately why he fell in love with her. But Mm -hmm. as the storyline progresses, we see that she's really not a good person. Um, That it, it first comes through when Um, They're struggling financially and he's having nightmares and her response is, can't you get those things out of your system? Uh, Maybe that's what's holding you back. The war is over. You won't get anywhere till you keep till you stop thinking about it. Snap out of it. 
So she doesn't have sympathy or attempt to understand what he's feeling. And, and then she's complaining that he has nightmares. He's not making mm-hmm. as much money. And, and he reminds her of the vows that they made. When we were married, the just of the, of the peace said, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. Remember? Well, this is the worst. And her comment is, well, when are we going to get the better? So there's that sense of I'm only up for this if I'm getting all of my needs fulfilled all the time. And if you're Mm -hmm. struggling with something or if we're struggling together, it's not my job to help you through it and to walk with you through it. Um, It's then then I really just want to bail. And that's what she eventually does. Right. It's interesting. She is looking for some kind of proportionality, like, okay, better or worse, but I I need some better to balance out the worse. Whereas those vows signify a commitment to the relationship during the bad times and not because better times will eventually be coming or it's the responsibility of one of the spouses to provide better times to make up for the bad times, but simply to... Uh, to demonstrate by the vow, look, no matter how bad things get, you know, whether I have post-traumatic stress disorder dreams because of my experience in the war, we're still going to have this common commitment to the relationship of, of doing the good for each other. Yeah. And one of the things I talk about teaching moral theology, so it's basically ethics um, with the Christian focus in view, we talk about what does it mean to be a good person, a good human mm-hmm. being, and what is love? And love is not a feeling. It's not a sentiment. It's an act. It's a willingness to commit yourself to the good of the other person, to even at times put your own needs on the back burner to help someone with their needs. Now, in a good marriage, there's reciprocity over the life course of the marriage. So it won't be one person always putting their needs on the back burner and taking care of the other. There should be reciprocity. But we see in Marie's case, she's not willing to be reciprocal at all. And in fact, um, when they have an argument later at the toward the end of the movie, and um, when she has a man in her boudoir and he comes home and he sees this man and question throws the guy out and then questions her about it, she says, "Well, what do you think I was doing all those years?" And he says, "I don't know, but I can guess." So he yeah. now realizes that maybe she wasn't faithful to him while they were married and he was fighting in war, but she assumes that he must have been unfaithful to her as well. She just projects her own lack of virtue on him. And she says, well, what were you up to in London and Paris and all those places? Um, And then she goes on to say, look, I've given you every chance to make something of yourself. You flopped. You couldn't even hold that job at the drugstore. So there's no recognition that he lost his job at the drugstore for a noble purpose, that he was standing up to um, a man who was being basically verbally abused um, by another person. And so, so she should be proud of him. She should be proud that he sacrificed his job for the sake of standing up to this veteran who was being belittled by this other man. Mm-hmm. But instead of being proud of him, all she thinks about is the lack of income and how it's hurt her personally. So she says, I'm going to go back to work for myself, and that means I'm going to live for myself too. So mm-hmm. we see the selfishness that we suspected was there all along now finally comes to the surface in a definitive way. Your point about a love being an act, I think, helps give a lens to how each of these main characters comes home. Each of them uh, comes back into a situation looking for that that intimacy and that love, because, of course, love is really lacking on the battlefield. And as veterans, they need to have their human dignity 
reaffirmed as they come back into civilian life. And each of them is seeking it in these variety of relationships. And each one has a particular challenge to either giving or receiving that love. Uh, Fred has his challenges with Marie. Homer, the sailor struggles with his family and you know his old girlfriend Wilma how are they going to receive me now that I've uh, gone through this terrible accident I come home with these prosthetics and Al struggles with loving his family as as we see Peggy and uh, follow on uh, some some uh, initial romantic leanings that we start to see in our minute today but in, in each of those cases there is at the heart a, a choice an act how am i going to respond to these people in my life and then the fear of how are these people going to act towards me and therein lies the the real challenge and the the difficulty of love and there you see their character too and whether their character right. predisposes them to love or not so we talked about how marie's character makes her unable to love um, Fred the way that he deserves. But in a way, I think Homer is the polar opposite of Marie, because where Marie is so focused on herself and, and self-centered, and she's not willing to stand by Fred or stick with him when things get a little tough, mm. Homer is the polar opposite. Wilma is just ready to pour herself out for him <laughs> and love him no matter what, and he doesn't believe it. And he's yeah. so convinced that she deserves better that he keeps her at a distance for almost the entirety of the film. So he wants to be giving, he wants to be loving, he wants to do what's best for her, but but he can't fathom that she that he's actually worthy of that love. And so he holds her at a distance almost the whole mm -hmm. film. I just want the listeners to note that I am not making a, a joke about Homer holding Wilma at an arm's distance. So, uh... <laughs> sorry, that was pretty bad. <laughs> oh dear. Oh uh, well. All right. Uh, so, I think on that note, maybe we should move into a discussion about uh, our minute today. Today, we are looking at minute fifty-eight of the best years of our lives. Minute fifty-eight begins with Peggy making Fred eggs, and it ends with Peggy making Fred feel guilty well you see there first of all um the older chivalrous standards that unfortunately mm. i would say as a woman don't exist as much in our contemporary world but the idea mm. that men should be protecting women looking out for their interests and so this idea that she slept on the couch while he slept in her bed uh is just anathema to him um, so she's trying to do the nice thing, but he thinks that it's, it's inappropriate and she's gone too far. But nevertheless, you can tell that he's touched by this kind gesture of hers. But he, he and Peggy are both doing this politeness dance throughout this entire scene that culminates in Fred being able to uh, denigrate himself and do a little self-deprecation. Oh, that's terrible. I'm such a heel. I can't believe I, I made you do that. I should have had enough sense to get a hotel. But that whole dance begins with uh, Peggy asking Fred how he slept last night, which I found to be a really interesting question since Peggy knows exactly how Fred slept last night. And she was the one in there uh, playing psychiatric nurse to him as he's having this horrible, uh, vivid dream of his friend's plane going down in flames. So there's this really interesting testing of the social waters and kind of a, a chance to 
see what kind of relationship these two characters are going to have after such a, a intense moment of vulnerability the previous night. Yes, and it's interesting too, from from my perspective, to just see how men and women are different in various situations. So as much as we mm. can say gender is a social construction, it's not real, etc. Men's and women's brains are wired differently, and they deal with stuff differently. So men, in my experience working in an environment, a seminary context with mostly men for the past 15 years and being mm-hmm. one of the few women around, men think about things and deal with things really differently. And so I think if, it, if he were having the conversation with Al, Al would say, oh, you had a rough night with those nightmares, huh? Tell me yeah. about it. But Peggy, um, she's going to be more subtle about it. So, oh, how did you sleep? Well, she's not really asking how did he sleep. She wants to raise the issue, I think, mm-hmm. of the nightmares and discuss it. Um, which he doesn't want to really get into and discuss. But what was so beautiful about that scene when he's having those nightmares is the way that she comes in and cares for him and she she dries the sweat off his face and she dries mm-hmm. his tears and she's just there to console him and accept him in his grief. Whereas by contrast, his own wife, Marie's response is, hey, just snap out of it, stop thinking about it, put it behind you. So there's a lack of recognition on Marie's part of PTSD and the reality Mm -hmm. of it. But even though Peggy doesn't have that psychological diagnosis either, nevertheless, she instinctively knows that this is a person in need. He's struggling. He's suffering. I'm not going to judge him. I'm just going to be there for him. So that probably makes him as a man feel uncomfortable as well, that not only did she give up her bed for him, but he, she saw him in this very vulnerable state. You can see that in Fred's face when she asks the question, how'd you sleep last night? And you can see his eyes look over her and he's he's got uh, some battlefield analysis going on here. Like, OK, what, what's the play here? What's going on? How do I get out of this with with minimal damage to my male pride? And that's one of the reasons that PTSD has been such a struggle be, and because men, I, I think, naturally, either through nature or through nurture, Um, are taught to hide a lot of their feelings, keep going, uh, not deal with them, not talk about them, etc. So I even know a man Mm -hmm. who was a world uh, Vietnam War vet, and it's just agreed upon that he and his buddies don't talk about what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of them are still struggling decades later with what happened. But by not talking about it, they stay stuck. And so so I think there's a way in which um, men in particular, unfortunately in the past, have not been able to recognize the severity of things like PTSD because their own sense of masculinity tells them that, oh, I have to just get over this, deal with it on my own, not be vulnerable. So what do you think of the role of fiction is in that kind of dynamic? So take a movie like The Best Years of Our Lives. It comes out in 1946 where you're going to have a large segment of the male population in the United States wrestling with the kinds of issues that Fred is depicted wrestling with in the film itself. It's not alluded to. It's not just kind of talked about as something that happened off screen. We see the nightmare itself. Does a movie like The Best Years of Our Lives help men who are going through that kind of trauma incorporate it, talk about it, come to grips with it, do you think? I would think so. It would be interesting to look at the literature in terms of if there are empirical anecdotal accounts that people gave on their responses to the film. But certainly I would think if you're undergoing a struggle and you see other people, even in a fictionalized account, undergoing the same struggle, you might think, well, there's nothing wrong with me. Look, here's a normal stand-up good guy 
um, and uh, um, and you heard about all Fred's accomplishments in the war. He was a very noble, courageous man, and yet right. look at how he's struggling. Maybe that means my struggle is is okay too. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with me that I'm struggling. So one could only hope that seeing that would allow them to be open and accepting of their own vulnerability and maybe seek out help. Mm -hmm. The other uh, parallel that I, I find really interesting, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about Marie, even though she doesn't uh, appear on, on screen this minute or is even mentioned, but the parallel or contrast rather between Marie and Peggy. Uh, Marie has spent the war years working at uh, a variety of nightclubs uh, and uh, involved in a, uh, you know, a very comfortable lifestyle. Obviously she is accustomed to the nicer and finer things in life. Whereas Peggy for uh, some time during the war has been working at the hospital and she has been engaged as uh, as a servant to others. And therefore, I think that helps to explain her response to Fred, who to her is a total stranger. I mean, the, the grand total of their reactions, you know, he, we, we pick up at the beginning of this minute, her saying that her name is Peggy. Yeah, for the last time, yeah, my name is Peggy. Because he asked her once when he was really plastered at Butch's place. And again, when she was helping him into bed and he got a little handsy with her. But in all that, she remains very patient and, and very caring. And even when he goes through that nightmare sequence, her compassion and her care for this man she has known for all of, I don't know, three hours, uh, really speaks to her character. It does. But at the same time, she's not perfect either. So mm. he takes her out on a lunch date, even though he's a married man. He kisses her at the end of it. And then that night she announces to her parents, I've made up my mind. I'm going to break that marriage up. And she <laughs> rationalizes it to herself as, oh, he doesn't really love his wife. I know it. She doesn't really love him. I know it. And her father's response, Al's really <laughs> smart in this. He says, who are you, God? How did you get this power to interfere in other people's lives? Um, oh, well, you don't know him. I know him because I love him, etc. And And so he says again, oh, you're possessed of all the wisdom of the ages. You can see into the secret recesses of his innermost soul. And she won't mm. listen. And mm. the only reason she breaks off, she discontinues the relationship with him while he's married is because Al takes it upon himself to go and talk to Fred and say, you need to stop seeing my daughter. She deserves something better than to be the other woman. She deserves someone who can give himself to her completely. So she's only able to act well because someone steps in and changes the situation on her behalf. Mm-hmm. Well, and we can see the, the seeds of Peggy's uh, love for Fred and her investment and relationship with him uh, beginning to be sown here in this little uh, politeness dance that's going on between the two of them. Yes. And her willingness to... Uh, to you know, help <laughs> to, to to help him by making breakfast and uh, doing a, a classic move where it's, oh, someone's making breakfast and I was oh can I help with anything and they say no by saying yes uh, can, can I help with any of that business oh you can pour some of the coffee if you like all right I'm helping myself yes I don't mean to in any way denigrate her she's a good person she's sweet yeah. she's considerate she's she goes out of her way to sacrifice for the sake of others I'm I'm just saying that. We have to be careful with one of the things that makes this movie such a good movie, I think, is the realism that 
like most human beings, people are not perfectly good or perfectly bad. People are a mixture mm-hmm. of good and bad, and situations test them in various ways, and you don't always know how things are going to turn out. Well, that's absolutely right. Yeah, one of, I've, I've said this consistently both last week and this week, and I'll say it again. Uh, the sensitivity with which these characters are portrayed as human beings is one of the things I love most about this movie. Uh, you alluded to that argument scene in the Stevenson family when Peggy announces she's going to break up the marriage. And I don't want to eat uh, the lunch of those folks who are going to be talking about those minutes in the future. But just the fact that kind of family conversation was depicted on screen at all blew me away. I'm like, oh my gosh, here is a family talking about something that's really heavy and really awkward. And yet, you know, no one is breaking any plates and no one is being you know, disowned or, or any other kind of high dudgeon or high drama kind of approaches to this. And the relationship continues to be important to everyone and is played out in a realistic way. And the other piece, the realism that I like, and I guess in a way this reminded me a little bit of uh, when the Brady Bunch show was aired on TV and everyone uh-huh. thought it was revolutionary because the husband and wife are sharing a bed together on screen. <laughs> and that was right. shocking and scandalous. So, but, so you see a little realism here and maybe for 1946, some of this is shocking as well. But the fact that when Peggy's arguing um, with her parents, Al and Millie, and she says, look, you don't understand how I feel because I don't see you passionately desiring each other. And, um, uh, and she says, well, her mother says, you don't really mean that, do you? That, that we, don't care, my, we don't care about each other. She says, oh, no, it's, it's actually the opposite. Everything's been perfect for you. You loved each other. You got married in a big church. You had a honeymoon in the south of France. You never had any trouble. How can you understand? And then her mother says, oh, we never had trouble. And she looks at Al and says, how many times have I told you I hated you and believed it in my heart? How many times have you said you were sick and tired of me, that we were all washed up? How many times have we had to fall in love all over again? So that brutal realism that marriage over the years can be hard, can be challenging, but yet there's something noble um, and beautiful when people do stick it out and they, they work hard and they find a way back to each other over and over again. And so the mm-hmm. fact that the movie is able to depict that, that, yeah, things look good in the foreground, but in the background, there's been some real struggles. And to acknowledge that and be honest about that, I thought that was very compelling as well. Mm-hmm. I, I can't add anything to that. You're absolutely right. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, whoever has those minutes coming up uh, would do well to maybe invite you to come back and talk about that scene in some detail. <laughs> you can tell I love the movie so much. I just want to talk about all of it. <laughs> well, I, I don't blame you. It's it's a fantastic film. Uh, in, in this minute specifically, um, I just wanted to call out the, the costume department. You know, we have a really great shot of Fred's dress uniform in this scene. And everything is as it should be for an Air Force captain. He has the uh, eighth Air Force patch on his shoulder, and he's got his proper uh, captain insignia on the uh, the epaulets on his on his shoulders with the, the two bars, and demonstrates, I'm sure, what anyone in 1946 would have known. You know given the proliferation of uh, military uniforms and uh, how aware people would have been of military service, given the draft, they wanted to make sure they got that just right 
The only thing I didn't like about that scene is she was stirring those eggs over and over and over. And I kept thinking to myself, well, they must be done by now. And is she using a metal implement? She's going to scratch the pan. <laughs> I know that was yeah, silly to think, but I kept thinking that. Yeah, Peggy is beating the hell out of those eggs. So they are going to be really tough. Uh, and the other, the other thing that was killing me, as you can see, she's making them in a glass frying pan. So you, you can't get that as hot as a metal frying pan, but you know, maybe that's actually good because for scrambled eggs, you want to you know, cook them low and slow. You want them on low heat, so maybe something like glass is actually preferable. I don't know. I like the fact, too, that she says to him, um, would you like some eggs? And he says, well, do you think I can handle them? And <laughs> alluding to the fact that he's hungover. And oh, that's yeah. another scene is the alcoholism in the movie and the way that they're all mm -hmm. drinking constantly and then some of them behaving badly when they've been drinking too much. Mm -hmm. Well, it, and there was a it was a great approach to I think the best approach you could take to alcoholism in the night in a 1946 film where you know, Al suffers the most from it. He's a very high functioning alcoholic and poor Millie has superhuman understanding and patience with him. Um, Fred, at least, seems uh, not to have so much of a problem with it. Just got you know, he he overserved himself last night because it was his first night back in town and couldn't find his wife. I'm sure he was very frustrated, and so he you know, turned to something just to make himself feel a little bit better. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised uh, if uh, Homer doesn't even know what alcohol tastes like. You know, famously, his uncle Butch never lets him have anything other than beer. <laughs> Good point. Yes, excellent. Point. Yeah. Dr. Brett, I wanted to just as a as a professor of moral theology, we have an entire movie about veterans coming home from war. And I wanted to just talk with you a little bit about that, uh, that the, the reality of war from a moral perspective and uh, the you know, perhaps you know, these individual veterans. We have an army sergeant, we have a Navy sailor and we have an Air Force captain. You know, what kind of moral considerations do we have to look at when it comes to war on a, on a kind of societal scale and then on an individual scale, you know, in terms of individual participation in it? Well, in the Christian tradition, we've always had two ethical avenues that we thought were both viable for people to follow. One is um, some sort of pacifism following the example mm. of Jesus, assuming that it's that, that one can choose not to engage in violence to fight injustice whatsoever, assuming they take up some other form of service to their community. Um, and the other is what's called just war theory, which in no way is limited to Christians. They teach just war theory at the Naval Academy, for example, um, mm. as an ethical approach to, to war. And just war theory evaluates both what are the conditions that determine when it is just to go to war and also what what are the means uh, that you can use in war um, that make it the, the waging of the war just rather than unjust. unjust. And mm. uh, in the case of World War II, arguably, uh, when we look at the Holocaust, um, German expansion throughout Europe, um, arguably, it, there was a just cause for the U.S. being involved and, and fighting mm. uh, against Germany and fighting uh, against Japan as well. But where we would morally evaluate the war as problematic in particular would be the use of atomic weapons, the um, mm -hmm. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and even the carpet bombing of Dresden. Because mm -hmm. in that case, is, we are not waging war against soldiers. We're directly targeting innocent human beings um, in order to try and win the war. And in just war theory, 
the argument is, and this would be held by Christians and non-Christians alike who, who ascribe to just war theory, um, that even if your cause is very just and very important, there are some things that you can never do, no matter mm -hmm. how much good may come out of them. And directly targeting innocent civilians, innocent human beings would be one of those things. So for someone like Fred, as an Air Force captain, and specifically the bombardier, he was the one for uh, responsible for making the call to drop the bombs on cities like Dusseldorf, as we hear him mention in the movie. What kind of moral culpability does he have? Because you know, a bomb is a very imprecise weapon. Well, we don't have, uh, my understanding in military service now is we don't have any kind of selective conscientious objection where a soldier could decide that a particular conflict is immoral um, and therefore he, he can't, he chooses not to engage in it. Um, he mm -hmm. could end up in military prison for that. Um, mm -hmm. And also disobeying a commander's order would be very problematic. You have to mm -hmm. Um, assume that he's actually doing something immoral in order to be able to disobey and, and not end up being court-martialed and thrown in prison for a long time for your disobedience. Um, but at this time, it's, it's not that, uh, I mean, we would say from the outside of it that uh, dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was immoral, but I think in right. the context of the war, he doesn't really have that maybe understanding um, that mm -hmm. this is morally wrong. And he doesn't even see, he makes a comment at one point, he doesn't even see the damage um, of what's done by the bombing. He's just up in the air and, and seeing all the smoke. So he doesn't even really know what's going on. But what, one of the things that's been interesting in military ethics um, in the last few decades um, is a discussion of not only post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, but also what's called moral injury. So moral injury is when um, a person like a soldier is in a conflict and they perpetrate some kind of um, uh, some kind of action, they witness an action or somebody else does it and they fail to prevent it. But what they see goes against one's own beliefs, one's own moral values, one's own ethical codes of conduct. And so th there's a sense in which their moral compass in a way becomes damaged and they come back home and they try to readjust to civilian life and they feel conflicted because they feel that because they either participated in something that they consider morally evil or they didn't stop it um, didn't intervene to to keep it from happening. Um, that they feel guilty, and so it's a kind. We there's a term now, moral injury, that encompasses mm. that uh, effect on those soldiers. Interesting, yeah. And you have uh, you have a range of uh, reactions to the war. You have Al come out of it. He, he seems pretty solid. Al does not seem to be overly affected by his experience in war. Uh, he, he's caught off guard by. Uh, his son Rob's questions about radiation poisoning, and his son seems to know more about the effects and the aftermath of the atomic bombs than Al himself does, even though he served in the Pacific Theater. And then uh, from there you have Fred, who has this PTSD and struggles, uh, perhaps not so much with the moral injury that you talk about, but rather the trauma of seeing uh, friends he cares about die as their planes get shot down. And then Homer bears physical scarring. He's lost his hands in a uh, 
he's lost his hands at sea and so he is constantly reminded and every time he tries to interact with the world of what war has cost him yeah so none of them as i seem to exhibit moral injury just uh mm-hmm. the the you see the ptsd so the difference is ptsd is a mental health diagnosis mm-hmm. but sometimes when the veterans come back um, then from those experiences of war, they have anguish, they, they're alienated, they have anger, and those types of feelings can't just be explained in terms of PTSD. And it has to do with the, the conflict between their moral codes and the acts that they were involved in. So, so this is something that obviously has gone on from the beginning of civilization when human beings went to war and had a personal mm-hmm. ethical dilemmas while they were fighting in them. Um, and disagreed with maybe being participating in particular conflicts or strategies used in those conflicts. But it, it's really, moral injury is really a more recent um, term. And I, my understanding is uh, that it was in the post-Vietnam era that one of the veterans and peace activists, uh, a couple of them looked at the aftermath of trauma from Vietnam, and that's when they recognized that there was moral injury um, at play as well as PTSD. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, uh, your your uh, friend who uh, who was a Vietnam vet, uh, the, the, he and his vet uh, comrades just don't talk about what happened in the war, presumably because of the pain of those memories caused. Yeah, but then that means they can't heal them. So someone might right. someone might have moral injury because they they used deadly force and civilians were were killed indirectly. And mm-hmm. maybe they didn't target those civilians, but they still died. And so they feel responsible or they mm-hmm. give orders. And by virtue of their orders, another service member ends up being killed. Um, or there was a service member who was injured in the fight and they're unable to provide medical aid to them and they're, they're unable to save them. Um, or let's say there was a rape that um, they themselves were raped or sexually assaulted or somebody else was. Um, or civilians were, and they don't report it. Um, mm-hmm. Or there were orders that they followed that went against the Geneva Convention or the military rules of engagement, and they realize now maybe they shouldn't have followed those orders. So those those would be the kinds of things that then people come back and they have to deal with it. Um, and so to what extent are they personally culpable for those acts? To what extent is their superior or the uh, the, the armed forces that they were a part of, uh, responsible. So those are situations that might have to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. But the main thing is psychologically, emotionally, if those issues aren't resolved, then people can keep struggling interiorly, and that can have a deleterious effect on their ability to um, reintegrate into civilian life and live health, healthy and happy lives. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately for Fred, he doesn't have anything so heavy that he has to struggle with in this particular instance. He just uh, his only emotional issue is how to figure out how to talk to this a very pretty and compassionate girl uh, over a very awkward breakfast conversation. And we'll see a little bit more of that in our episode tomorrow. But uh, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for being with us for minute 58. Was there anything else you wanted to say about this minute in particular or about the movie The Best Years of Our Lives in general? Well, even though it's not about this particular minute, I would say, as with, probably with many other people, my absolute favorite part of the movie was the very end where um, uh, Fred is talking to Peggy and he tells her, hey, do you know what life with me will be like? 
Um, mm -hmm. It's going to take us years to get anywhere. We'll have no money, no decent place to live. We'll have to work, get kicked around. And she just kisses him and loves him anyway. So I thought that was just beautiful, um, along with Wilma's uh, complete devotion to Homer in, in spite of his injury. And so I, mm -hmm. every time those little instances happen in the movie, I just teared up. So it's a, maybe like a four Kleenex movie for me. So that gets <laughs> a high rating on my rating system. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to know that you were uh, properly prepared and, and so touched by this film. It is a classic for a reason. And I'm so thrilled to have delved into all these various themes and moral topics with you on this episode today. Uh, so uh, I thank you so much, Dr. Barrett, for being on the show. And uh, listener, thank you for joining us today. Uh, remember that you can find the Best Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Uh, and if you want to you know, maybe join in some in-depth conversation about the morality of awkward breakfast conversations, why don't you come on down to Butch's Place? That's the best years of our lives, Listener's Cafe on Facebook. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Dr. Barrett, is uh, there anything that you want to uh, plug or promote uh, here at the end of the show? Uh, nothing I can think of. Just uh, thanks for your wonderful podcast. And uh, now I'm inspired to listen to more of it and find some more wonderful movies that I've been missing out on. Oh, excellent. Well, then, if you're interested in more of this format, I encourage you and all of our listeners to go to moviesbyminutes.com, where you can find over a hundred different podcasts that explore movies in this minute-by-minute minute format, and I can almost guarantee you that your favorite movie already has a movie-by-minute podcast. But before you dive too deeply into those, make sure you save some time to join us tomorrow on the Best Minutes Podcast. Hey, Joe. You better hurry up out there, because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.